Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 54. God is viewing his people Israel in these verses and uh, their state is not a good state. But let's hear God's promise to them starting in verse 11. O afflicted one, storm tossed and not comforted, behold I will set your stones in antimony and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate, your gates of carbuncles, and all your wall of precious stones. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established, You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near you. If anyone stirs up strife, it is not from me. Whoever stirs up strife with you shall fall because of you. Behold, I have created the smith, who blows the fire of coals, and produces a weapon for its purpose. I have also created the ravager to destroy. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed, and you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication from me, declares the Lord. Anyone can see from these verses that God is promising his people a hopeful and a bright future. I think every one of us would like a share in a future like that. If you have had an unhappy week, and if you feel as though nothing will ever get better, if you feel as if there's no place on earth where you could go, then the transformation in these verses will probably seem almost too good to be true. And just in case you've had an unhappy life, which certainly does happen, the promise here is such a startling contrast that it might seem to you like a vision from somewhere deep within the gloom of a cave. It might seem like the glimmer of light at the distant opening that could spell your release. If you've been buried in unhappy woe, grace glimmers very hopeful indeed. Now here Judah is being likened to an unhappy, wretched woman. We all know someone who fits that description and none of us are sheltered from it because the effects of going against God and doing things on our own have come crashing into our lives too. Sometimes it is very obvious, something like money woes or child-rearing problems, lawyers and cops and jails and ruined jobs and eviscerated prospects, loneliness and irreparable relationships. Those are obvious, but sometimes it's not so obvious, but still true, because we're all sinners. 
Judah was unhappy and troubled, as was its capital city, Jerusalem. A couple generations is all it would take. A couple generations would go by, and the city, city would literally be razed to the ground explicitly as a consequence of the people's sin. But these words promise hope for getting through that. These are promises of a new city, a spiritual city that God makes available to every one of us sinners and gives to everyone he saves by the work of his servant. Have you made a train wreck of your life? Don't despair. Since we're sinners, our hope is in citizenship, in God's city, where the future is bright. I want to talk to you about that today. And I want to tell you, first of all, that the future is bright because God's city is rebuilt in beauty. When we talk of God's city, we mean the church. Israel was the church in the Old Testament. It was an earlier stage of God's redeemed people. It was part of his purpose to reclaim the sin-damaged world through his servant. Let all of us sinners understand If we want this bright future, then our place is in the church. Not because the church is the mediatrix of grace or the dispenser of salvation, but because everyone truly saved by the death of Jesus becomes part of his body. There's no ordinary salvation outside of the visible church. God has called us in our time and in our place to be partakers of these promises. And he has gathered us too to be a people for his own possession. But we have to take a step back to review what it's like to be in the sinner's world of woe. And that might make the church seem all the more beautiful to us. What's it like in the sinner's world of woe? Look at verse 11. O afflicted, storm-tossed, and not comforted. Afflicted, yes, we understand what that is. One paraphrase says, Oh, unhappy creature. You can imagine a woman whose husband does not support her, and that's an affliction. We're sorrowful for the unhappy because we've been there too. Uh, To wish, as some do, that you could just crawl into a little hole and pull the cover over on top of yourself and wake up in a new life somewhere else, or to never have to see another person again. Some are that unhappy. To be so troubled that a person would wish to drink their life away or to do anything to ease the pain, that's affliction. To be storm-tossed is to live a life in upheaval. Uh, Storms and the roaring of the waves of the sea are one of the ways God teaches us about the damaging nature of sin. If you look at waves in the Bible, you'll you'll discover that uh, that's what God's talking about. A sinless world is a stable world, sinless now, and that's why God, when he created the earth, first gathered the waters into one place and said, let the dry land appear. And that was, met, that was so that man could have stable footing. It was so that human life could flourish. If the sea ever overcame its natural dikes, as it did in the great flood, then humanity would perish. God even told Job about 
uh, keeping those waves at bay with his word there on cre- the day of, of creation. Thus far shall you come, God said, and no farther. And here shall your proud waves be stayed, Job 38. But now reflect on sin's damage. Think of people who are confirmed in their wickedness through long years of practiced rebellion against God. God says the wicked are like the troubled seas when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. When people come under judgment, God often talks about them as if they've been overcome by waters. Uh, Jonah knew what it was to be judged or chastised for his sin when he prayed. You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. When we talk about the instability of the sinner in this way, we don't necessarily mean the worst kind of criminal. Uh, It could be a woman. It could be a very nice woman who through long practice, when God says, do this, she is saying, no, I'll do it my way. And you might be saying, well, my life is pretty stable. I'm hardly tempest-tossed. So where's the danger? And there is a danger. The Apostle Paul answers that question in part, saying even believing the wrong thing is like jumping into the stormy sea. If you believe error, you are tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, Ephesians 4. And if someone were to to take in that false doctrine and become a teacher of it, a false teacher, things are even worse. They could be known as a good Christian in their community, but Jude says they are wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Follow their doctrine, and your life will begin to heave. To be adrift in the sea is terrifying. Just because of the sea's raw power, it could crush you. Is there any hope for the unstable? Is there any hope for those whose sin has made their life like this? Well, remember Jesus with his disciples on the Sea of Tiberias when they were about to capsize in the boat. And what happened? He awoke. And rebuked the wind and the raging waves and they ceased and there was calm. Christ Jesus is the one who brings calm and order. Now Isaiah also says that Judah is like a woman who is not comforted. Just hearing God name each of these tells us that God is supremely interested in the hurts of his people. Are you desperate in your brokenness? Are you resigned to your brokenness? Are you walking wounded like someone with old hurts that never healed? So many people are depressed and many Christians feel depressed too. And do you think God cares? Yes, I could tell you he cares. He looks at Israel here And says, oh, poor thing, broken and not comforted. I care. I care.
And now upon the sinner's world of woe, God pronounces beauty. He talks about the change in their sinful state, like the change of a city from ruin to riches. Now the city, uh, you might have gathered this, is one of Isaiah's favorite themes. It's a good way to talk about the church, because people in a city have to live together, and what a lovely thing it is when brothers dwell in unity. A beautiful city is a wonderful thing. If you ever travel to Europe, you're probably going to go see some beautiful cities. Even if you love farms and woodlands, it's worth seeing the wonders of the world that man built. It might just help us to see that Isaiah's city theme is a way of talking about God's work of rebuilding. Uh, Long uh, ago, in the previous chapters of Isaiah, chapter 1 in fact, Isaiah talked about the wicked city restored to the goodness of Davidic days. And then later on after that, he talked about Zion as if it were the spiritual center of the world to whom all the nations would come. And then as a city whose moral filth had been washed away, and then as a joyful city, and then sometimes as a destroyed city, a fallen city, but again by grace, a strong city, a redeemed city, a city raised up, and later on, a comforted city. And taking up the theme of city here, he says, the church is going to be a beautified city. Beautified means it didn't start beautiful but it underwent a remodel that made it beautiful. Here it is, verse 1. Behold, I will set your stones in antimony and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate, your gates of carbuncles, and all your wall of precious stones. Uh, Antimony is virtually synonymous with beauty. What's antimony, you say? Well, it's an elemental metal. You'll find it on the periodic table. And it comes in either this silvery color or in a black color. And the black kind was ground to powder in the ancient world, ground to powder and used for women's eyeliner or mascara. If you've ever seen ancient Egyptian paintings of their women, their dark eyebrows and their eyelashes would have been colored with antimony. Even Job's daughter at the end of the book of Job is named Karen Hapuk. She has antimony in her name, which means, her name means, a horn of mascara. If you put antimony in mortar and then set the stones into it, that colored mortar makes the stones stand out. It's very beautiful. Well, what else? God says he will lay your foundations with sapphires. You've probably noticed that foundations are usually overlooked for beautifying. Sometimes you see the stem wall of your own house and it's not very beautiful. But what if all the foundations in the city were covered with stones? Probably not sapphires, uh, which were largely unknown in those times, but in lapis lazuli, a very bright, uh, semi-precious blue stone. Sometimes it was crushed to make pigments and dyes, and sometimes made into jewelry. That blue 
Ishtar gate of Babylon was covered in blue tiles meant to replicate the color of lapis lazuli. That would have been a very beautiful foundation, uh, just as that gate was a beautiful gate. And now to the spires of the city, towers that would catch first light and last light of the day. 12, verse 12, I will make your pinnacles of agate, uh, which might actually be red stones like rubies, uh, and your gates of carbuncles, that means literally a stone of sparkle. And I don't think anyone knows exactly which one, but the root word means to kindle a fire. Uh, so a red sparkling stone, a carbuncle, is just any kind of red gemstone. And finally, all your walls of precious stones, literally stones of delight, a mural of precious stones on the walls of the city, that would be beautiful indeed. The beauty of gemstones is very unique. Sometimes people say gems are stunning or breathtaking or radiant. Their beauty comes from the way they absorb light or reflect light. They're bright in the light. God's talking to his church of old who is wretched and unhappy like a woman and promising her jewels. And women do like jewels as they like other things of beauty. To receive a gift of jewelry is a symbol that the woman is adored by her man, her husband, or the one who will become her husband. So what a change there is in view. A change from her poverty and how it will turn to uh, bottomless wealth, from depression to contentment, from instability to trust. Isn't that the way you wish it was for all women everywhere, wouldn't you want every person to be someday glorified? You know, to love our neighbors is not to be content with them just the way they are, any more than to love ourselves is to resign ourselves to death and decay. No, we want to be glorified. We want others to be, to reflect the glory of God. Well, praise the name of his servant, Jesus Christ. In him we have justification by faith in his name. And as Paul says in Romans 8, whom he justified, these he also glorified. And saying all that presupposes that the relationship has been restored. The durability of gemstones is symbolic. It says this relationship lasts forever. Who forms the relationship? Who remodels the city? I do it, God says. God beautifies. Now just to give you some information that will help you in interpreting the scripture, we should realize that to interpret this passage literally does not require a single material gemstone. Interpretation does, of course, require the idea of those gemstones. We have to hold the idea in our mind, but God doesn't actually have to make any foundations of blue stone for this prophecy to be literally fulfilled. Instead, this language of the gemstones and of the city theme, these are vehicles for talking about something even more precious than stones that I'm going to talk about in a moment. But let's just keep on imagining this city for a moment. And let's ask what all these gems symbolize. And I can't 
break them down one by one, but you understand that if you saw a city like this, you would know you're looking at a city that had enduring wealth and contentment, beauty, strength, a just government, graces, and power. And all these things are God's gift to his church. It has the true spiritual wealth. It has godly contentment. It has radiant holiness. It has the strength of the Holy Spirit. It has the government of the just king. And the grace of God refracted in human graces. And it has unlimited divine power. All given by God. But have we been trying to obtain beauty without God? We should ask if we have been trying to adorn our lives, trying to be spiritual, gracious, loving, gentle, kind, and just without reference to Jesus Christ. Have we been doing it without caring about his blameless life of obedience uh, or without reference to his death on the cross and his resurrection? Are we trying for glory without his church, which Christ says he intends to present to himself as a glorious church? Remember what Isaiah said in early chapters about Israel's daughters. They worked really hard to put on their own beauty. They used anklets, headbands, crescents, pendants, bracelets, scarves, headdresses, armlets, sashes, perfume boxes, amulets, signet rings, nose rings, festal robes, mantles, cloaks, handbags, and so on. And that was their self-effort, their desire to be radiant without the light of God. And God took away all their finery and struck them with scabs and then gave branding instead of beauty as he will for all who have other gods before him. All that's in chapter 3. And you remember the lesson of Psalm 127 that we sang, unless the Lord builds up the house, the builders build in vain. Are you trying to build your own city? Are you trying to make it without God? Or are you being built by God into his city? Israel exemplifies how one of them emphatically and without exception leads to unhappy wretchedness and how the other leads to the true beauty of the Lord's city and all it symbolizes. One being the way of self-adornment, the other being the way to salvation. And its beauty in the people of God, the church, has the radiance of the heavenly Jerusalem where God is the builder. Now, a city would be useless if no one lived there. Well, the city here in Isaiah is actually a way of talking about the family of God. Remember from Isaiah 53 how God said, Jesus, his servant, shall see his offspring. Now God turns to the family of the servant. Those for whom the servant died are his sons, And God has already told Israel to make room because the children of the desolate will be more than the children of her who is married. That's in verse 1 of this chapter. And now God promises beautified children. 
Look at verse 13 with me. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. Children take quite a bit of care to be beautiful. True enough that it comes a bit more naturally to children, but if you've ever encountered a child with filthy ears, someone you might call a ragamuffin, someone with a scabby head or smelly, you know that parental care in bathing and cleansing and changing and washing is always required if that ragamuffin is to become a doll. God's beautifying of us comes by way of teaching or discipleship. Verse 13 says it right there, All your children shall be taught by the Lord. Now Isaiah doesn't say how this is going to happen. He doesn't say how discipleship will go. But let me point out to you that in the same way gemstones get their beauty by reflecting the light that strikes them so God's children become beautiful by reflecting his character. In fact, if you look down at verse 17, at the very last sentence of this chapter, it says, this is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. Uh, Many servants are there, refashioned after the likeness of the servant of Yahweh. Many servants conformed to the image of Christ. And I think you'll find this interesting. Up until this point in this book, every time Isaiah has used, I shouldn't say every time, but up until this time, Isaiah has used the word servant in the singular. He has used it of Israel, that's true, but he has always been driving toward Christ the servant. But from here on out, To the end of the book, servants only appears in the plural. It is servants. Why? The atonement of Christ. The the work of the servant has created many servants. Indeed, it has formed a family. And such family are we, the children of Abraham. By promise, the sons of Jesus Christ are the true Israel. Servants of God who replicate the character of Christ. And of Christ, teaching was important. Isaiah earlier said in chapter 50, and it was the servant speaking, the Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens, he awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear. And I was not rebellious, I turned not backward. That's the servant speaking of his own discipleship. The tongue and the ear. The Lord God, says his servant, has given me the tongue of disciples. The true disciple has the words to be able to give the Lord's consolation to others. And that also presupposes that he has the ear. Listening morning by morning and obeying. That's discipleship. And you and I, brothers and sisters, we are taught by God. John 6, Christ said it. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. 
Everyone who has learned from the Father comes to me, comes to Christ. And 1 Thessalonians 4, now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. And what is it that we must listen to if we are to be like Christ and reflect God's glory? It is God's word. This is what made Israel unique in its day. It had God's word from the beginning. It was alone among the nations as possessing his word. And the church from the beginning has had this word of God. From the time of the fall on, it is possessed revelation of the truth. It's what you have. Church of Christ, your Lord and Savior has laid down his life for you. He's poured himself out to death. He's been numbered with the transgressors. And now that he has completed salvation, we, his people, come to him and we are able to sit before him and stand before him as his disciples to be taught his word. And it is the Holy Spirit who is the teacher. And you know what the curriculum is. It's the Bible. When we give diligence in this school, we are the, become the beautified children of Zion. And the result of this teaching, maybe we could call it, maybe we could say the result of this parental care is peace. Verse 13, and great shall be the peace of your children. Not small peace, but great peace. Peace is the outcome of God's covenant of grace. Peace is the product since the Son of God became surety for us, since He purchased our lives by laying down His own life. Because He did, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace is the outgrowth of justification in which wretched sinners obtain a right legal standing with God through faith. In this world, we look at ourselves as Christians and we don't yet see the glory of beauty as we someday will. The church has no gemstone. The church is rather on the downside of earthly grandeur. Its members may be very poor, their clothes second-hand, but don't be fooled by outward appearances. The member, that member of Christ's body, of his family, has peace with God. That brother or sister who believes in Christ has been freed from the awful tyranny of self that turns people into miserable, unhappy, disconsolate wretches. If Christ had not got a hold of your life and mine, we would be storm-tossed still and afflicted and still not comforted. But now we're stable, consoled, and happy. We're at peace with God. And that brings us lastly to the thing that is more valuable than precious stones. It brings us to the beautiful foundation. Just the first words of verse 14. In righteousness you shall be established. Established 
is a word meaning to be formed up or firmly grounded, just like you might pour the footer and stem wall of your house's foundation. And so following the figure of speech of this city, it would refer to foundations. What's so firm that the city will never be moved? Well, in Europe, there is more than one city that is built on soft, watery, muddy soil. Amsterdam is one, and so is Venice. If you tried to build a Kansas-style house on their soil, it would last just a few years. Uh, Eventually, its foundation would crack, the house would sag, and it would slump into the mud. So how did the Dutch and the Italians build such enduring and beautiful cities on this muddy substrate? Well, the answer is they realized they could drive pilings down into a layer of sand that is many meters below the surface. So they bought great tree trunks, uh, sometimes from Germany, and they drove them down until they rested on the sand. And the acidic water preserved the wood from rotting away, and then they would build with brick and mortar on these pilings. Today they use concrete pilings. Without them, their cities would collapse. What's the firm foundation of the Church of God? What's the only foundation that you should build your life on if you wish to avoid collapse? And the answer is, in righteousness you shall be established. What is righteousness? Well, you know, first of all, that righteousness is something none of us have because we've broken God's law. We don't have it in ourselves, I mean to say. There is none righteous. No, not one. Romans 3. Righteousness is something humanity lost but it is also something that can be regained. And what is its nature? Well, it is ethical purity. It is uprightness as God is upright. Ability to keep God's law from the heart and in keeping it, showing oneself to be blameless and therefore able to stand before God unashamed and uncondemned. Righteousness is an attribute of God himself. Now who of us has always kept God's law from the heart? Haven't we all coveted? Haven't we all told a lie? Who of us can be uncondemned before God? Who of us can say I'm upright as I am in my conduct before God as God is? There is none righteous, not even one. But one man can say it. All praise to the servant of Jehovah who has undertaken our cause and as our kinsman has provided us with his perfect righteousness that he himself earned through blameless obedience. His obedience was both doing the precepts of God and submitting to God's wrath in place of sinners. This is the righteousness that God rewards. Psalm 18, the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness. This righteousness of Jesus Christ, that is what God imputes to sinners who trust him. And therefore we are accepted as righteous. We don't have to earn it ourselves. That's impossible. We do have to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And when we do, this righteousness that is from God by faith will be imputed to us. This righteousness will cover our sin. It will pardon our guilt. It will replace our wretchedness, make us acceptable to God. It will keep us for eternal life. It will beautify us. It will make us endure for that glorious day when we stand in God's presence to reflect his glory. Christ's righteousness is the most valuable and beautiful jewel, and it is the strongest construction material. Could you become a citizen of this city, or are you already? Of course, you could be. Jesus Christ came into the world to save not the righteous, self-righteous in themselves, but to save sinners, 1 Timothy 1. His righteousness is our only hope for a bright future. To him who believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted as righteousness, Romans 4. So let's take hope in Christ, in whom we have the brightest future. Let's pray. Merciful and gracious God, you have seen our tears. Are they not in your bottle? Are they not recorded in your book? You have known the unhappiness that we've brought on ourselves through our sin. And you've known the unhappiness of this world. And how thankful we are to you that you took note. We're not cold toward us, but supremely loving. And took us and cared about us. Uh, even us who had transgressed against you for so many years. And you transformed us. You gave us this most beautiful thing, the righteousness of Christ. So we thank you for your gifts, all of which accrue to us through his death and resurrection. We thank you for grace. We thank you for the faith and the grace that are gifts from you. We thank you for the repentance unto life. We thank you for the ordinances of this church and we thank you for the people who are the temple of God with your Holy Spirit dwelling within. We thank you for unity and we thank you for beauty and we pray that we would even more day by day reflect the glory of God as we are conformed into the image of Christ. We pray for all of us from young to old that we would be taught by God that we would Be good disciples, and we ask that you would lead us with your good spirit in this way. We pray for the blessing of this word of yours upon us, that it would have no, that it would not be as if it had no effect, but that it would have a strong and powerful effect upon us. We pray that it would nourish us and produce fruit for your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.